0: book of Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, We rely on the conviction of the Spirit to motivate our souls to turn from what is evil and what is destructive. So help us to sow the seeds of the Spirit that we may reap eternal life and not plant the seeds that lead to destruction. For Father, set us apart, for you are holy, holy, holy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Real quick, I want to give you one minute. In your bulletins is a brochure for the fall groups and classes as things are getting launched and started. At Christ Community Church, we want to gather disciples to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ by studying God's Word in community. And the best way for you to do that is to sign up for a group or a class. It can be a community group where it meets at home, off campus usually, or a class on Sunday morning or Wednesdays. Jeff's leading an awesome class, Foundations of Christian Thought. It's going to be fantastic if you want to know more about the Word and the Lord and theology. Um, so look in here. That's not exhaustive. This is just basic information. The full descriptions of the classes and leaders are online and in the Grand Hall. So come find me after service. I'd love to talk to you. Thanks.
1: That was the best announcement ever. Thank you. So efficient. Right to the point. Yes, that Wednesday night class, that's going to be the best class. So uh, of all of them. Just kidding. Okay, if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 19. We will mostly be in Acts chapter 19 today. We won't venture too far out of that chapter. Just came back from the men's retreat. Delivered uh, the message last night to a bunch of guys hungry for the Lord. And very, very tired from sleeping on bad beds. And uh, their hearts and their spirits. I tell you, just to be in a room with 40 to 50 guys singing their hearts out for the Lord is just an inspiring, awesome experience. I want to encourage you to take advantage of it next year if you can. Uh, and last night they served for dinner giant bowls of chili. So I just, my only admonition was later in the cabins, you know, follow Jesus' teachings, do unto others as they, you would have them do unto you. So. Anyway, uh, we're back, and uh, so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. So today we'll be dealing with, uh, as Daniel said, if you came in a little late, some, some sensitive stuff, more so next week than this week. But uh, we're going to start that this week, some sensitive stuff in Paul's world, some dark themes, some elements that were just part of their world. Uh, it's all they knew. It's all they knew about. It's the only world that they knew. And so you may want to check your kids into Sunday school. For those who have little ones uh, and, and, and you're concerned about that, go ahead and check them in. Uh, in his book, A Day in the Life of a Roman Soldier. Now, if you love historical fiction, you will love this book, A Day in the Life of Roman of a Roman soldier by Dr. Gary Burge, who is a New Testament historian. He's a New Testament scholar, particularly with respect to the Greco-Roman world. But he wrote a novel about a Roman historian and what it would be like to be, I'm sorry, a Roman centurion and to be a Roman soldier for one day. And after reading that book, I skimmed back through it this last week, the daily realities of being a Roman or a Jew in this greco-roman world they were horrific it was absolutely horrific if you're following along on your outline in your bulletin uh politically rome's system was corrupt through and through we like to think of ourselves as the heirs of greco-roman democracy but the truth is if you were to be transported back into that world into jesus and paul's first century world you would not recognize it, it you, would, you might as well go to Mars. Because their value system, their political system, it was completely different. It was the advent of the Christian faith that changed the value system of the world toward justice and toward, and bending the arc of history toward mercy and compassion and truth and values, Christian values. Uh, politically, they were completely corrupt. Politicians today, by contrast, try to hide their corruption they try to at least some of them make an effort don't they (laughs) They, to try to hide their uh their corruption why because publicly it's a stigma to be found out that you've been corrupt that you lied that you cheated that you bribed but if people knew that about you if you were a politician in the first century in rome that was admirable people would be saying wow he's a great he is a great leader now that's a great leader he cheats really well like he's just got that down Uh, Society: The weak and powerless were stigmatized. If you were weak or powerless, if you were one of the many millions of people born into the uh, empire with some kind of physical deformity or disability, uh, you were stigmatized. You were devalued. The helpless, the poor, the weak, virtues like humility, kindness, mercy, mercy, altruism, equality. Those are things that arose from the Christian faith after the third century AD. They did not come from Rome. Theirs was a strong man power or honor and shame culture. And if you were a strong man in that culture, you were honored. And if you weren't, you were dishonored and shamed publicly. In terms of their morality, they were morally depraved. This goes without saying. But I'm going to say it anyway. It is difficult to even put words... To what kind of morally depraved culture this was. And it permeated all segments, all sections of Roman society. Sexuality was defined by hypermasculinity. It was a culture of hypermasculinity, and that's an understatement. Men were expected to be dominant aggressors in the bedroom. That was just expected. A real man, an aro man, would take what he wanted. He would take what he wanted. Men were expected and encouraged to have multiple affairs, to regularly visit the brothels, to rape children, though they didn't think that was rape, particularly male children at dinner parties. And so long as that man expressed his dominance, he would be celebrated in that culture. Can you even fathom that? If a woman, by contrast, if a woman, by contrast, exhibited the same virtues or value system as a man, They could be killed. They could be tried and put to death for dishonoring their husband. If they were caught in adultery, the husband was obligated by the Roman system, their culture, uh, to kill the woman and rape the man. I mean, this is reality. This This is reality for them. Slavery, you want to talk about slavery? Imagine this. Imagine one in every three people in this room being a slave. One in every three. Slavery, slavery was rampant. And when the rich fell on hard times, they would turn their slaves into the street to beg, which was considered dishonorable and demeaning. And if that slave had to steal and he was caught, he was crucified on a cross, which was the ultimate dishonor in this culture. Murder and theft. You want to talk about a murder rate? I mean, think about, just imagine if 62% Of the presidents of the United States right in the history of the United States just imagine if 62% of them had been murdered by their successors that was considered the way you accede to the throne that was socially acceptable for them so from the top-down murder wasn't particularly a problem at times when leaders even recognized that it was a problem it was still tolerated in the cities the mafia the mob in the first century Every city had the mafia, organized crime. And those organized criminals would go just like they do today from shop to shop, just like the five families, (laughs) you know, in New York, from shop to shop and shake people down for money. And if you didn't pay up, they'd beat you or maybe even kill you and get away with it. Religion was crazy. They merged many bizarre religious practices across cultures. Listen, it wasn't illegal in the first century, for you to believe what you wanted to believe, so long as it was considered a legal religion, so long as Rome said that's a legal religion, not illegal. And what usually made it illegal is if it did not go back far enough, like it wasn't old enough. It was a, if it was a brand new religion, they frowned upon it. And this is why they accepted Judaism. But typically, uh, they practiced the, this kind of public occult their religion was crazy. They studied the entrails of sacrificed animals to discover the will of the gods. The formal religion of Rome's pantheon was essentially institutionalized occultism. Local, more familiar, personal religions became very popular and they invoked, regularly invoked, demonic spirits to help them through life. The temple virgins were occasionally caught not being virgins. And when they were caught not being virgins, they were sacrificed, killed to the gods of the temple that they represented. Priestesses in local religions, like in Corinth, and and as we'll discover next week with with Ephesus and their Artemis Artemis religion, which was a sex goddess, Uh, a priestess was basically a sex object, and so next week, we will talk in a little bit more detail about that. I could go on about the horrific nature of their society, but I want to spare you. And this is what you need to know. The gospel of Jesus went into a culture that was absolutely in every way predisposed to rejecting the gospel of Jesus. There is no human way possible that the good news of salvation in this crucified Jew on a cross, resurrected from the dead, could have taken hold in this world. And this world represented a dark, chaotic system into which the good news went and the good news changed the world one person at a time. So our main idea today is that the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus and salvation, pierces the darkness and it saves lives. And it's the only thing that can. Let's unpack this theme from chapter 19. So the first thing we see about Paul Really, in Apollos, too, in our last story about Apollos, last couple of messages, was Paul and Apollos were effective but controversial advocates for the Christian faith. They were effective. I mean, every time the Bible mentions Apollos or Paul or any of these New Testament preachers, it says they were effective. It worked. People got saved. People came to the faith. Churches got started in cities. And they are both described in the text as being competent advocates and defenders of the Christian faith but as talented apologists they found themselves in hot water in both Jewish and Roman culture that was hostile both the Jews and the Greeks they were both hostile to the Christian message look at Acts chapter 18 24 and 28 it says Apollos a native from Alexandria came to Ephesus for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus that Jesus was the Messiah Acts 19.8, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, but when some became hardened and would not believe, they became stubborn and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking all of his, the Christian disciples and conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years. For two years he did this. Now listen to this. So that all of the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now if that's true, if that's not hyperbole or overstatement, if that's true, depending on how you define all of Asia, the the region of Ephesus or Ephesus the city, that is between 300 and 900 new people a day, every single day, hearing the word of the Lord for the first time. The gospel is exploding in this culture. The gospel is taking off by the power of the Spirit. And so the Jews are stubborn. Several times in the New Testament, the New Testament mentions that they are stubborn. Remember Stephen, as he was being stoned, he said, You stiff necked Pharisees, you people have a hard neck. You people are inflexible. You just won't budge. Stubbornness, inflexibility is an unwilling to change your mind, no matter how much data is put on the table. Ask yourself this question, what belief system do you hold that you would not let go of regardless of how much data I put in front of you? And what Apollos and what Paul are doing is they are going into these synagogues and then speaking to the Greeks and showing them, look at all of this in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah suffering dying being buried and dying and then rising again look at these passages this was god's plan and it happened it happened in our day it happened in our time and these people just are dug in they dug in their heels they will not believe no matter how much data is put in front of them no matter how much evidence no matter how good the arguments are and they persisted in their unbelief they just won't let it go And so then that turns into speaking evil of the way. It turns in, he says right here, and so they begin to malign the way. They begin to speak evil of Christians. Of course, a dark culture that is not willing to receive the message is going to think that we're a bunch of kooky nuts. And it's going to slander us and gossip and speak evil about us. Controversy is just part of the deal. They are effective at reaching people for Christ, but they're also extremely controversial. I, I want to say that any presentation of the gospel that is not controversial in this culture is not the true gospel. In this dark, chaotic world that we live in, the gospel is going to be controversial. Number two, Paul's preaching was accompanied by the work of the Spirit. Look at verses 11 through 12. So it was accompanied by the work of the Spirit. Now, of course, Apollos' preaching and teaching was accompanied by the work of the Spirit too, but but in different ways. I want to show you that. So God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths like these handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them, and many who had become believers. And we'll stop right there. So what was happening is many people are becoming believers, and God is performing dramatic, astonishing miracles <laughs> In the ministry of Paul, as a matter of fact, I would have to say that these miracles are somewhat different than even than the miracles that Jesus did. Now, Jesus would just speak, and it was done. But this people have so much faith in the Lord that cloths, these handkerchiefs, these aprons that touch have touched Paul were brought to the sick and the demonized, and they are set free. Now, I don't know what is going on there. Like, I don't get that. I don't understand that. I've never seen anyone do that. I think I saw Benny Hinn. on TV one time, like throwing his coat on people. I don't think that's what's going on here. But why is the work of the Spirit necessary? Two miracles are going on, two kinds of miracles. The first kind of miracle that's going on here are signs and wonders, and they accompany Paul's preaching. But I want to say this, they don't always accompany Paul's preaching. There are times in the New Testament where Paul preached, and he doesn't talk. the New Testament doesn't talk about him doing any kinds of signs and wonders or miracles at all but this was a place in which God was pouring out a spirit in such a way that signs, wonders, and miracles were abundant in the ministry of Paul. However, they were not abundant in the ministry of Apollos. Apollos also preached the gospel faithfully and accurately. Apollos also was very effective in his apologetic or his defense and advocacy for the Christian faith, but no miracles according to the New Testament followed his preaching as far as we know. And so there's a teaching in the church today. It really comes out of uh, this church called Bethel in Redding, California. And in that church, on their statement, they say that any true expression of the gospel, any true preaching of the gospel, must be accompanied by signs and wonders. That's a false gospel. That's actually adding something to the gospel that's not in the gospel. Because there are lots of examples in the New Testament where the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvation and his lordship, the good news of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord is not accompanied by miraculous signs. Jesus preached the gospel in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Nazareth, and didn't do very many miracles there. He still preached the gospel because of their lack of faith. And so we have two miracles going on here. So we have these signs and wonders, but we also have saved people. In both ministries, what is happening here, Apollos is very helpful to the church in that he's encouraging the church. People are getting saved. But in Paul's ministry, people are also getting saved. That's the greatest miracle you'll ever see. Now, that's not a cop-out. That really is. For a person who does not know Jesus, who grows up in a dark world, in a dark culture, who is a sinner by nature to come to faith in Jesus, you will never see a greater miracle. And in fact, you will never see a more lasting miracle. Amen? Of course. Of course. So why do we need the work of the Spirit when we preach? Why do we need the work of the Spirit when we share the gospel, when we proclaim it and explain it? Well, because we have a human nature problem. I think the Bible makes it pretty clear. We have a human nature problem. This is the doctrine of sin. In fact, it's the doctrine of original sin. People are, by nature, objects of wrath. That's what Paul says in, what is it, Ephesians 2? People are, by nature, objects of wrath. We come into the world as image bearers. We were made in the image of God. As image bearers, we have fallen from the glory and the standard of God's perfection, His perfect holiness, and we need a Savior. And so we come into the world as sons and daughters of Adam. You got a nature problem. Have you ever noticed that you don't have to teach your children to sin? We were just talking to Daniel about this, not not to call you out, but, um, but hey, join the club. Join the club. You put a toy in the middle of the floor, you put your two children (laughs) at at either end of that floor, and it's just, it's going to be a knife fight right there to get that toy. And you don't have to teach them that. You don't, listen, in our home, I was telling them this, I was trying to encourage them, in our house, it is forbidden. My kids will tell you this is true. It is forbidden for them to use the word idiot with each other. And I, and I mean, every time we hear it, we don't like it, and immediately, immediately, Carrie or I put the kibosh on it. And I have heard it come out of their mouths 5,000 times. <laughs> look, look, they're sinners. This is what they are. You don't have to teach a kid to be good or to sin. You have to teach them to be good. You have to teach them, don't call your brother or sister an idiot. Don't use that language. It's because it's in them. It's in them, and we all know it. We are born into this world with a certain predisposition, a certain proclivity, a tendency to do wrong, to want to be selfish, and that is sin. We have a nature problem, and the Holy Spirit is the only one who can overcome that barrier, that problem in our lives. And we have a human cultural problem. We don't just have a nature problem. We have a nurture problem. We have, we have an environmental problem. Not only do we come in into the world as sinners unable to recognize the truth when it's put right before us no matter how good of a case Paul and Apollos and these preachers and Peter put before these Jews and these Greeks to show them Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. The entire pattern, the arc of the story is wrapped up and summed up in him. It, it, they will not believe. And part, partly is because they can't see the truth. Now, they may be able to understand it. They can understand the propositional content of the truth. They can articulate it back to you and say, well, I understand this is what you believe, but I don't believe that. What I mean here is they can't receive it as the truth. They can't see the truth for what it is. It is God's truth, and so their heart is just not warmed to it. Now, imagine being a Jew. Imagine being a Jew in this culture, and you have expected a sword-wielding warrior to come out of the desert of Judea and to, and to lead a revolution against Rome. That's what you expect. That's your vision. That's your view of Messiah. And then Paul And Silas and Timothy and Apollos show up in your synagogue to say that Messiah that you think is supposed to be a sword-wielding, triumphant Messiah actually triumphed by dying on a Roman cross for your sins, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Imagine that. Now, as a Jew, this is just psychologically very difficult for you. I mean, you you can hardly process this. Because in your synagogue readings, they have screened these readings out. Isaiah 53 is not read as a messianic passage, but go back and read it. It surely is about Jesus. And for the Gentiles, when you grow up worshiping false idols and the gods of the spiritual realm behind those idols as gods, and they're false idols, they're false objects of worship, and paganism, and paganism, and demonism, and the occult, and all of that darkness. And you grow up, that, and it's led to this moral insanity in your culture. And someone comes along and says, no, the true way is take up your cross and follow the Sun. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. You can hardly hear that message. It takes the Holy Spirit to overcome not only your nature which is set against Christ, but your culture, which has conditioned us to not believe the message. What about Americans? How hard is it for us? How hard is it for people today to receive the truth of the gospel in America when you grow up in a society that tells you that there is no objective truth? There's no objective source of truth. And your entire project in life, in the human life, is to find your truth, is to speak your truth, wrong your entire project in the human life is to worship God in spirit and in truth and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and then lead others to it right and so people people are being sold a lie in our culture and our culture is darkened right now listen the stuff that my daughter tells me that she is hearing from her Christian friends at school is unbelievable I mean, I'm sitting across the table listening to her tell me this is what my my Christian friend thinks that they're like pansexual. I'm like, honey, I'm super, super old. I don't even know what that means. I just know that there are people and they're male and female. And so we get into a conversation about it. Listen, we live in a culture because people are unmoored from the truth. They can think anything they want. They become their own authorities. Okay? So how hard is it? And a culture that has been darkened the way America has, is becoming increasingly dark, how hard is it for them to receive the gospel? This is why, folks, we got to get on our knees. This is why we got to show up for prayer meetings. This is why we got to come to church and gather in the power and the fullness of the Spirit. And we have to walk out that door full of the Spirit and share the gospel with people full of the Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, people will not receive the message of the gospel. He has to turn the lamp on in their mind, and he has to warm their heart to it, and he has to bring them into the community of faith where it can be nurtured. Number three, Christian-like solutions can only mimic or parody Christian solutions. Christian-esque or Christian-like solutions can only mimic Christian solutions. The gospel... Uh, addresses our sin and spiritual darkness. People are bound in their sin. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. How do you set a slave free? And some are enslaved to the powers of hell, the powers of darkness, demons. And settling for an imitation or a cheap knockoff, no matter how well-intentioned or no matter how much it looks like, Christianity isn't going to set you free. It's not going to set you free. Acts 19, 13 through 17. Look at this story. Wow. It says, now, uh, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they saw that Paul was very effective in releasing people from darkness, like setting them free. And they thought, hey, let's just use the same name of Jesus. <laughs> So, uh, okay, where are we? To pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the, by the Jesus that Paul preaches, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest. So Sceva is a Jewish high priest. These are his sons. They are priests in training. We're doing this. And the evil spirit answered them, uh, I know Jesus, and I, and I recognize Paul, But who are you? (laughs) You know. And then then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. Why does he put this in, in the story, right? Like, why is this in Acts? When this became known to everyone, so now it's gotten around. Everybody knows about it. Who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Why would that be so? Based on this story, what is going on here? Uh, this was a Jewish school of thought. This is called Jewish, uh, the Jewish magicians of the first century. The Jewish magicians, what they had done is they had imported occultism into the Jewish faith. And they were big time exorcists and a lot of uh, secular biblical scholars, these are non-believing biblical scholars try to associate Jesus with this group of Jewish magicians who were exorcists. They liked to, uh, to cast demons out of people, right? And this is what they believed. This was their legend. This was their myth. Their myth was that uh, Solomon, who was David's son, was going to return as Messiah and king. And, when he, and Solomon used to wear a ring or had an amulet in which that ring was empowered to cast demons out of people, And so what they thought is that they could use an amulet or a ring and put it on someone's forehead in the name of Solomon and cast demons out of people. Now, I want to tell you, this has nothing to do with 2 Samuel chapter 7. Like, this has absolutely nothing to do with Solomon, the historical Solomon at all. This is just a myth, a legend, in the between testaments that that grew up around Solomon, right? And now Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 12, and he says what? He says, one greater than Solomon is here. In other words, I'm greater than the historical Solomon, and I'm greater than your idea of Solomon. When Jesus casts out demons, it is with a word. He simply speaks a word, and the demon leaves. Now, he doesn't shout at them. He doesn't perform any incantations. He doesn't have any amulets. He doesn't have any ornaments. He doesn't do anything magical at all. Jesus is not a Jewish magician. Jesus is the Son of God in power, and he sets people free. But they have mistaken Jesus for this. But Jesus made it very clear, I am greater than Solomon. I'm greater than the historical Solomon. I'm greater than your idea of Solomon. And Jesus said, Satan can't cast out Satan. If you're on on that team, then you can't oppose Satan. A house divided against itself will not stand. So the sons of the priest of Sceva are practitioners of this dark Jewish magic. They are parroting Jesus and Paul's style... For all the world, they are mimicking the affectation of their style, the effects of their style, but they have no power. And I want to tell you, there are a lot of things in our culture today. We could list them off. You could think of 10 things right now yourself that mimic the, the affectation of the Christian faith. It looks very Christianly, but it's a form of religion denying the power thereof. The power is in The gospel. The power is in the community of faith that Jesus started. And so the sons of the priests of Sceva get their butts whipped and are sent running out of the house naked. Now, obviously, obviously, Luke has included this story in the text because it's hilarious. <laughs> like it, it is. It's funny. But because it also shows that when it comes to the issues that are central to the gospel, listen. When it comes to the issues that are central to the gospel, when it comes to the issues that the gospel addresses, only the gospel has the answer. Okay, now ultimately, the gospel has the answer for everything because the gospel promises you and I resurrection at the end of the age. You and I will rise again, and let me tell you, every problem that you have, if you have a heart problem, if you have clots, if you have issues going on in your brain every problem that you have is going to be swallowed up in the victory of your resurrection at the end of the age praise God and right now the power of God is available to us but the power of God is present right now to save the sinner and set those who are held captive by the devil free and so listen if you are a sinner and you're held captive by the powers of darkness and the devil The scripture is here. The gospel is here to set you free. So when it comes to the issues that the gospel addresses, only the gospel is the answer. And nothing else can really be. Every other answer is just temporary. Number four, confession and repentance are the keys to personal transformation. So this revival is going on here. It's great. I mean, it's just so great. In an increasing hostile culture that we see, In our world, hostile to the truth and stubbornly rejecting the message of Christ, maligning and slandering the people of God and the Christian faith, and the only way for people to experience real, lasting transformation is to confess their sins and to turn away, to repent from their sins. Look what happens in verses 18 through 20. It says that many who became believers came confessing and disclosing their practices Well, many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone, so they calculated their value and found out it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. What are we looking at here? We're looking at confession, the power of confession. This is what the gospel produces in our lives. When the Holy Spirit turns on the light of your eyes and in your inner man, you can see the truth, your heart is warmed to it. This inspires and empowers confession and repentance. And there's no salvation apart from confession and repentance. And that is what these folks do. These folks immediately come and publicly confess their sin of practicing these dark arts and all the sexual nonsense and craziness that's associated with the dark arts. They come and burn their books, these dark scrolls with these incantations. They light them on fire in a pile in the middle of the street. We can confess our sins to God. God expects us to confess our sins. How do we get a prevailing church? Because you have a church that preaches and teaches the good news of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah, and the power of the Spirit to transform the individual into a community of holy saints who are becoming holier This is what the word sanctification means, the word sanctification. Now, in the New Testament, the New Testament teaches that every single Christian is a saint. So when Paul writes to Ephesus, he writes to the saints in Ephesus, the church. When he writes to Corinth, he says to the saints in Corinth, the church. If you're a believer and you're a part of the church, you are a saint. And sanctification is sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more holy and set apart unto God. And this is what confession and repentance are about. Look at first John one eight through ten. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think the most arrogant thing a sinner can do is to say to God, Listen, all those other people they're sinners, but not 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 me. I was born this way. No, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. But if you say that you have no sin, you are telling God that he is a liar. If we confess our sins though, he is faithful and just and righteous to forgive us of sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Full stop. God does not just want to forgive your sins. Take that away today. God does not just want to forgive your sins. He does want to forgive your sins, but he wants to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Not just positionally, He wants to bring you into a life where you are being cleansed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word in holy community. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his Word is not in us. Can you imagine standing before God on the day of judgment and telling him, well, I didn't repent, I didn't confess and I didn't repent, I think you're a liar. That's not going to go well for you. We confess our sins also to each other. James 5, 16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, is very powerful in its effect. And so we confess our sins to God, but we also confess our sins to each other. There's a very powerful thing that happens. God has wired us so that when we sit down and we get help from one another, and in that has to be an environment, James doesn't talk about this, but that uh, wisdom principles would dictate that that has to be an environment where you trust the other person. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they, else they will trample, trample under them, and they'll attack you. Why? Because the swine can't digest a pearl. He can't chew a pearl, but he can eat you. And so you and I are not to throw our, our pearls, those things which are the, the secrets of our hearts before people who are untrustworthy, so in Christian relationships, you find someone who is trustworthy, you confess your sins. I can tell you right now, having a group of guys that meet every Monday morning and, and just asking the question, how are you doing? How are you doing in your thought life? How, how are you doing in your heart with God? How are you doing in your marriage? How's your marriage? And asking each other those accountability questions in a mentoring uh, relationship and a mutually discipling relationship, that, that will make all the difference in your life. And so we confess, we confess our sins ultimately to God, and tell God that He is telling the truth about us. We acknowledge that God is truthful and that we are liars, and that we confess our sins to each other for our mutual healing. And we turn from the life that once ruled us that kept us bound in sin and darkness. Now the people in Ephesus don't just affirm the truth. They don't just say, "Man, we believe this creed. They're not just creedal Christians. They said, we believe this truth and we are going to turn away from falsehood. We're going to turn away from the things that bound us in our lives. They changed direction. They burned the books. They smashed their idols in the middle of the street. They turned away from the futility of the worldly system. So just to recap, we are charged with piercing the darkness, this dark, chaotic culture with the light of his truth, the light of his gospel, because it is only that gospel that can save lives and set captives free. And like Paul and Apollos, we are called to be effective but controversial advocates, defenders of the Christian faith. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation, and it's never not going to be. But it's the Spirit of God that empowers that good news to set the captive free. Christian-like solutions can only mimic or caricature Christian solutions and confession and repentance are the keys to personal transformation will you pray with me let's take this to heart I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and as they do I just want to walk you through a prayer of confession a prayer of commitment don't leave today without bringing something from this message into your heart do not walk out that door Some of you right now, you're sharing your faith, and you're sharing your faith in a hostile culture, and I just want to encourage you right now as we pray together, be encouraged. That's the way it's supposed to work. If you're a controversial person at work, guess what? So was Paul. So was Jesus. So was Peter. You're in good company. You're blessed. When people falsely say all kinds of things about you for the sake of Christ, will you be encouraged this morning? And the gospel is still the power of God and salvation. Do you need the help of the Spirit this morning? Would you ask God for wisdom? Would you ask Him for the power of the Spirit this morning to share, to break through the darkness that people are bound in? Will you ask the Lord to help you this morning? Pray through it. And there's no solution to what only the gospel can solve ultimately only the gospel can set a sinner free only the gospel can wash you clean and if you need that this morning what else are you waiting for self-help isn't going to help you it's not going to wash your sins clean self-help or psychology and any of that stuff they may provide temporary useful solutions for now, but ultimately, if you have a heart issue, if you are estranged in your relationship from God, you need to be reconciled to God. Would you just receive His forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes with the good news? Receive it right now. God, I receive your forgiveness, and I confess my sins, and I pledge my life to turning away from sin. And Lord God, we all do that right now, we're all in the same boat. There's no holier-than-thou folks in here. We're all saints. And we're at different places on this road, this continuum of growth in you. And God, will you help us by the Holy Spirit? May, May we walk out that door being inspired by the word, encouraged, challenged to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.